So let's pray before we go into God's word. Father, we are so grateful to you that you are the God of the Bible. Uh, Every word of truth that we read from your scriptures, Lord, characterizes who you are. We learn more deeply of your character, of your nature, Lord, and as we learn more of who you are, Lord, we fall more deeply in love with you uh, because you are a good God. You are a great God. You have done marvelous things, Lord. Who can put into words all that you have done? We are so thankful that you sent your son Jesus as we've been praying about throughout the service and singing and declaring, Lord. He is uh, the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you for sending him. We praise you, God, and we ask that as we hear from your word uh, that our hearts would be open, that we would not quench your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but it's a little cold around here for me. Anybody else feel that way? You guys want to take a trip somewhere warm? Yeah, I do. I was thinking maybe we could ask Amanda if she could find or locate a a 400-person coach bus between the two services and all the kids. We could jump on the coach bus and, hey, let's do it. Let's just go someplace warm together. Now, we're going to locate that bus, and as we get onto the bus, we realize that we don't have a driver. So everyone takes a vote, and they nominate the senior pastor to be the driver of the bus. Now, you guys have some real faith in this bus. You better start praying now before we depart. We also decide that the senior pastor needs some help, so we nominate some co-pilots, pastors and elders, to help us navigate the trip. And you know, a 400-person coach bus going down someplace warm requires a lot of help, so different people fill different ministry needs on the bus as we're heading down to our location. And we also want someone to help people come on the bus, as we're getting our trip on way, because whoever said that you can't pick people up along the way? So I plug in the coordinates, I put into the GPS, Healthy Church, Florida, and we're off. Now, as we start the trip, we just cross over the bridge when a backseat driver in the back of the bus yells, hey, you know, I think meeting people's needs Georgia would be a great place to go. That's really warm. Why don't we head off there? And a couple of people cheer. And then someone else from a different part of the bus yells, hey, I like close fellowship Nevada. Let's head in that direction. And still another person yells out, hey, man, I hear that more music. California is the place to go. Let's head out that direction. So everyone's yelling out suggestions. People are cheering for the suggestions they like, except for the person who yells out diagramming Greek sentences, Minnesota. It is like crickets chirping. I said yeah to it, but you know, that's fine. Well, as we're plotting out the trip and people are yelling out the suggestions, me and the co-pilots become increasingly confused. Uh, how are we going to meet all of these needs on this bus? Maybe, maybe we could chart a course that will meet everybody's needs. Let's first head to More Music California, then we'll make our way to Close Fellowship Nevada, and then on to Meet People's Needs Georgia. And then finally, we'll make our destination. Only, where were we heading again? Now, this imaginary dynamic that I've described to you is actually a dynamic that happens to organizations all the time. Organizations like churches. 
It's called mission drift. There's so many things that a church could be doing, should be doing, that as we put all of those things on the table and we don't rightly prioritize them, suddenly we become confused and lost and we no longer understand where we're heading. That's why churches have things like vision statements. A vision statement allows you to be crystal clear on what your main priorities are, what you're hoping to accomplish. And obviously, as we think of a vision statement, we want our vision statement to come from the Word of God. Now, I've seen all kinds of different priorities with churches, especially as you think of what is ultimate. Some churches emphasize we are all about reaching lost people. Everything we do is centered around reaching people who do not know Jesus Christ. So we plan sermons for this long. We express this type of content, but we don't express this type of content. When we share the deeper truths of the scriptures, we do them at alternative times than Sundays. Other churches are all about programs. They have programs for everything. Marriage crisis, program, credit card debt, program, flu, program, We even have programs for people who are suffering from too many programs. Now, is anything wrong with reaching the lost or with programs? Of course not. We need to tell people about Jesus Christ. We must be strategic about the way we think about discipleship. Mission creep has occurred when any one of these secondary things becomes the ultimate thing. I hope you're asking yourself a question right now. Rob, what is ultimate then? That's a great question. God. God is ultimate. You see, the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, what is the chief end of man And it answers the question, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Question number one rightly prioritizes for us what our ultimate priority is. Worship. If you get worship out of sync, everything else will suffer. If you get worship right, everything else will benefit. Now, if we're going to just throw out a word like worship, it would probably be a good idea that I define that word because we've said it in all kinds of different contexts. Let me put it like this. Worship is our response to all that God is, all that God says, all that God does. God created us to see his glory and reflect it by knowing it and loving it with all of our heart with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. I think John MacArthur put it a little more simply. Worship is all that we are reacting rightly to all that he is. So this means then that as Kimo was leading us in worship, that that is not exclusively what worship is. While we love this portion of our service, it's not uniquely worship. Worship is loving God, honoring God, knowing God for who he is, adoring who he is, obeying him, and proclaiming him to other people. Music is just one of those aspects of our lifestyle of worship. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul 
puts it like this, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So that worship becomes a 24-7, 365 type of lifestyle, a way that we respond rightly to all that God is. Now, as I think of worship and explaining why it's the ultimate priority, I can think of no better passage than John chapter 4. John 4 is a story about Jesus going to a well, and there he meets a woman. And in the middle of a very earthy dialogue, worship comes up. And Jesus defends to this woman what worship is and why it should be our ultimate priority. So if you would, open your Bibles with me to John chapter 4. Um, if you do not have a copy of the scriptures, there's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you. You can pull that out and you can turn with me to page 888 and you'll be at the passage with me. And we're going to read this together. John chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting behind the well, or beside it. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. 
But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now from this chapter, I think that we see three implications on why worship is the ultimate priority. The first thing that I would like to bring forth is worship is our ultimate priority because God is our deepest need, even if we don't know it. When you look at this passage, Jesus strikes a contrast between this woman's physical thirst and her parched spiritual condition. Do you notice that? She goes to this well daily. She carries with her a jar. She fills up the jar. She brings back this 40-pound jar of water. Day after day, the same thing. And you could see why then this would make a great avenue for him to talk to her about her deepest thirst. She's not just thirsty for water. That's not her ultimate thirst. The one who created the water is her ultimate thirst. That's why this living water metaphor is so important. It's an invitation to have your deepest need met, your deepest desire met, a relationship with the living God, a life-giving relationship that starts here and continues on into eternity. This is what we've always wanted. When you look at the Bible, there's all kinds of passages that talk about this deep thirst in the human spirit. Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 63.1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And not only is he our greatest need, but he's our deepest satisfaction. Psalm 16.11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see, to be in right relationship with God is better than anything else. David Jeremiah says it's better than holding your first child in the delivery room. It's more awesome than meeting the person you're destined to marry. It's more awesome than seeing earth from the window of a space shuttle. He is your deepest need. Now, we are all spiritually thirsty. Every human being who has ever lived, all seven billion human beings that occupy the earth, have a deep longing, a deep desire in their soul that they may or may not understand. Blaise Pascal described it as a vacuum, a God-shaped vacuum that occupies the human heart. And we are constantly trying to fill the void, and we do all kinds of different things to do so. We buy things, we look for love in all of the wrong places, we drink, we work. But none of these things meet that desire ultimately. Now, is it wrong for you to desire? 
Is it wrong that we have deeply innate in us a desire to be fulfilled and satisfied? And the answer is obviously no. But the way that we go about meeting those desires, that's where we can go wrong. Jeremiah, the prophet, says this of the Lord, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And they have hewn out for themselves cisterns Cisterns was just a way of collecting water. Only the problem is when you try to go in an alternative route from God, the cistern is broken. It holds no water. That's why when you pursue all of these things, you go back reoccurringly and you don't have your need met. We are far too easily pleased. C.S. Lewis said this, if there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire a good and earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I would submit that this notion has no part in the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem to our Lord that our desires are not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And that's what we see in John 4, isn't it? The woman is offered this living water, this eternally satisfying water. And how does she respond in verse 15? Give me this water so that I will be thirsty and I won't have to come back to this well. We are indeed far too easily pleased. You know, in Jesus, you are offered a purpose that is eternal in value and you might just be stuck on your career pathway. In Jesus, you are offered an eternally satisfying relationship and you wonder if doing marriage God's way or dating God's way will meet your biggest relational desire. In Jesus, you are promised eternal riches and we cling to our money. Don't go to the broken cistern. Go after the living water. This is what will ultimately satisfy you. A lifestyle of worship, of us rightly reacting to all that God is. So how do you get this living water? Well, the scriptures tell us that we get it by trusting the gospel message. Jesus Christ came and he died as a substitute for our sins. You see, we're all in disconnected fellowship with God. That's why that vacuum exists. But Jesus Christ came and he lived as a, uh, a perfect uh, person on this earth. He, he lived a life that you couldn't live. And before God, he died in your place. He bore your sins on his shoulders and he satisfied the just requirements of God so that through Jesus, you can have your ultimate need met, your deepest desire met, a life-giving relationship with God. Now let me move us forward. Second implication. Worship is your ultimate desire because worship has to do with real life. 
I want you to notice a couple of things in this interaction, how earthy and real it is. First, in the middle of a conversation about worship, we see that there is racial tension. Did you notice that? Sir, how is it that you're asking me for a drink? I'm a Samaritan woman. And then John even goes so far as to explain they don't like each other. Now why? Well, the Samaritans were the leftover tribes from northern Israel. Uh, when they had reformed again or reconstituted the leftovers of that tribe, they intermarried with foreigners, so that was not something you were supposed to do. They also built an alternative site for worship on Mount Gerizim. The Jews worshipped in Jerusalem, and they recognized their version of the first five books of Moses, denying all the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. This was an intense conflict that had been boiling within these people literally for centuries. Here Jesus is, right in the middle of that mess. But not only that, not only is it real because of this racial tension we see, it's also real because he's in the middle of a conversation about worship and adultery comes up. I don't know if you noticed, but she's at this well by herself at the sixth hour. Now, Ladies during this day, they communally gathered around the wells. That's how you socialized on a daily basis. And in addition to that, uh, they would not go to the well at the sixth hour, which was the hot burning sun of noon. They came either early in the morning or late at night. What does this mean? She's a social outcast. She's had not only five husbands, but the husband she's living with now is not her husband, and this made her socially ostracized by the rest of the group. So here Jesus is in the middle of this. Why? Worship has to do with real life. Worship should find its way into conversations about racial tension, adultery, and yes, even physical thirst. Why? Because God is involved in every aspect of life. He is the God of real life. He's not to be compartmentalized. We don't just associate with him on Sunday mornings. He occupies every hour of every day. He is the creator of all life. And when you recognize that, then you find that your life is to be lived as if before the gaze of God. That's the worshiping lifestyle. Tozer has said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why? Because if you have a high view of God, it will change the way that you view the world and that you live in the world. A high view of God breaks down the barriers that divide human beings. See, when you know that God is a God who shows no partiality, who is compassionate and gracious and loving to all people, how in the world can you feel the right to hate another human being? James chapter 2, James says, Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in dying on the cross, Christ leveled the ground for the approach to God. All people, all different tongues, all different backgrounds have access to God through faith in Jesus Christ. 
That's why the church is to be a place of equality. Here, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Christ is in all. And when we realize this, we realize that I'm just a thirsty sinner sitting next to another thirsty sinner. There's nothing that divides me from this person. How else does a high view of God change us? Well, it also gives us the right perspective on life. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm not worshiping, I find myself given to things like fear and anxiety. It happens to me all the time. Uh, my problems in life loom large in my mind, and I can't seem to shake them. On any given Sunday, like me, you are bringing into this place all kinds of things unpaid bills, deadlines, a friend's unkind comment. You're thinking about that thump, thump sound that your car made as you were driving into church. You're thinking about that test that's out there that might determine whether or not you have cancer. You're thinking about that child that is in deep rebellion or that sinful tendency that you can't seem to shake. A million host of issues and details, and they're big. But in worship, they grow smaller because God grows larger. In worship, our vision for God is readjusted. You see, God never changes, but our vision of him, that changes all the time. It's like when we walk outside and we view the night sky and we see the stars. Those stars to us appear like just little pinpoints of light. And I don't know about you, but I've walked out plenty of times in the nighttime and totally missed their presence. They were small and insignificant, and I didn't think about them. But I'll tell you, if you look at the stars through a telescope, you see reality for what it is. They are massive spheres of raging fire. They are millions of times bigger than this planet Earth. They burn so bright and so hotly that if you were to just gaze into them for even a moment, you would be blind. The stars haven't changed, have they? But my vision for those stars has. Worship is our telescope for seeing the greatness of God. But you only get this vision adjustment if you are regularly in worship. John MacArthur has said this, the source of most of the problems people have in their Christian lives relates to two things. Either one, they are not worshiping six days a week with their life, or two, they are not worshiping one day a week with the church. We need to do both. So grab those Bible reading plans. Pray 365. Make sure you're with us every Sunday. Third implication. Worship is our ultimate priority because God seeks it. Look at with me at verses 23 and 24. The hour is coming is now here when true worshipers, worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You know, God desires for his glory to be made known throughout the universe. Now, God's glory is, it's the visible manifestation of God's holiness. And God's holiness 
is the sum total of God's beautiful perfections. Holiness is that which makes God different from us. You could even say it like this, it's the Godness of God. Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And the answer, of course, is, say it, no one. Psalm 86.10, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. No one has the ability to change your life but God. No one has the ability to change that situation that you feel is insurmountable in your life but God. In fact, when you think of everything and you strip it all away, people, places, and problems, what is left? God. And this God needs nothing. When I say that he is seeking our worship, I do not mean that he needs our worship. Warren Wiersbe has said it like this, he knows all things so our worship doesn't surprise him. He owns all things so our gifts don't enrich him. He is perfect in all of his attributes so our fellowship cannot improve him. Why then does he want our worship? Jesus says that God is our Father. Now, God cannot be a Father to you if you do not cultivate that love. Since God is a person, our worship involves a personal relationship with Him and a personal response from Him. Remember MacArthur's definition. It's all that we are reacting rightly to all that He is. And how do you do that? Jesus says, you worship God the Father in spirit and in truth. This is necessary. Truth is necessary because we must know the real God. God cares that you know him as he is. He does not want to be mischaracterized. You know, it's very common today for people to say, well, you know, so what if I get my theology a little bit off? I'm, I'm passionate about what I'm saying. So what if we're singing that song and it diminishes the value of God's justice and his holiness? I'm passionately singing about his love. Do you like being mischaracterized? Let's think about it like this. Say you are invited to an awards ceremony and they're going to honor you. Now, you have no idea why they're honoring you, but you're excited nonetheless, but let's just be honest, it's fun to get honored, right? So you show up, you sit down at your beautiful table, and the MC she comes forward, and she begins to talk about you. Now, she launches into it by mispronouncing your last name. And then she starts to tell everyone about your credentials, only they're not your credentials. They're credentials that she thinks will impress everyone in the room kind of devaluing what you've actually done in life to get to where you are. And then in addition to that, she launches into this personal story, and I'll tell you, it is a great story. I mean, it's funny. People are laughing in the room, and then she boils it down to this sad moment, and people start crying. Only there's one problem. You don't know each other. 
And she mischaracterizes who you are time and time again as she's telling the story. How would you feel? Would you feel honored? You would be angry. You might be tempted to take that glass of slightly fermented grape juice and dump it over her head. Job 42.7 The Lord says to Job's friends, My anger burns against you, for you have not spoken of me what is right. Through the whole book, they're mischaracterizing who God is. Truth matters. Worship is only real if we worship God for who God is, what God has said, what God has done. Now, why is spirit necessary? Spirit is necessary because we must love God and we must love his person. God wants us to worship him in spirit. And when I say spirit, I mean lowercase s. So that's talking about your inward being. We're not talking about uppercase s spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now mind you, you can't worship God in lowercase s unless you have the uppercase s Holy Spirit indwelling you. Okay? Now why does God want this? He wants you to subjectively like him and love him. He wants your hearts This type of love can't be manufactured. It only grows in you as you grow to know a person. God wants you to love his person. He doesn't want your rigid shell of just duty. He doesn't want you to just love him because you must. Let's think about this analogy. It's an anniversary. In fact, it's my anniversary. It's July 8th. And I had better get that right quickly, right? Now, My wife loves Reese's peanut butter cups, and she loves flowers, so I go to the store, I pick up the peanut butter cups, I get the flowers, I come to the front door, and I go, boom, like this, as she opens the door and surprise her, and she responds to me, oh, Robbie, these are just beautiful, and she comes and gives me a big kiss on the cheek, and then say, after all of this display, I hold up my hand matter-of-factly, and I say, say nothing about it, this is my duty, How is she going to respond? There might be a couch downstairs. No, not a couch. A corner of a room somewhere with my name on it for that night. Right? Edward John Carnell put it like this. Suppose a husband asks his wife if he must kiss her goodnight. Her answer is, you must, but not that kind of must. What he means here is that unless there isn't some spontaneous affection in your heart that motivates you to kiss her, the kiss loses all value. You must read your Bible. You must study your Bible. You must pray, but not that kind of must. You must reach people for Jesus Christ so that his glory would be manifest here on Cape Cod, but not that kind of must. You must be a good neighbor to your neighbor so that they can see in you the kindness of the Father, but not that kind of must. Worship must be in spirit and in truth. God desires your head and your heart. He wants your logic and your passion. He wants all that you are rightly reacting to all that he is. So what does this mean for Osterville Baptist Church? 
Well, as we move forward as a church, we have to prioritize the order of things appropriately. What comes first? Worship. Worship comes first, even before reaching the lost. But let me say this. When you get worship right, we actually get better at doing mission. I put together a little statement, a vision statement, that I think will help crystallize these priorities for us. Um, it goes something like this. Osterville Baptist Church seeks to be, number one, a worshiping church. Number two, a transformational church. Number three, a missional church to advance the glory of Jesus Christ on Cape Cod in New England and to the ends of the earth. Now, we're going to talk about transformation and we're going to talk about mission in the weeks to come, but the first thing we got to get right is worship. Because if we get this right, everything that follows will benefit. Let's pray.